From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Malady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, I hope you're having a terrific Thursday. Uh, welcome to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Malady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, we would love to hear it. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Malady. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? Well, something has happened since last we spoke. It became November. That's right. Which is a big month for Holy Mother Church. That's right. That's right. In fact, November is, you could say, the month of the church. Because we not only have All Saints Day and All Souls Day, but we also have several feasts of dedications of churches during Lent, to uh, November, too. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about, um, all, first of all, the church. Now, of course, we know that the church on earth is in struggle. We used to call it the church militant. It's, of course, this extension of Christ's body and his uh, soul. It's why the church is called a mystical body. In Christ's incarnation, the experience of revelation of the Holy Trinity, in a sense added to our appreciation of it and experience of it, physical realities. We call those the sacraments. They're a part of Christ's visible mission because the Father has sent him, as the Father has sent me, so do I send you. And then the Son goes to heaven to send the Holy Spirit, which is the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit, of grace in our souls. Now, and including the sacraments, a part of that visible mission that now is absolutely necessary, either in actuality or in potentiality, to experience salvation is the physical church. And I don't mean the building, I mean the people who make it up, the society of the church. We also know from Holy Scripture that the society of the church, this visible mission, isn't just limited to this world, that there's also a society in heaven of those who, be, who, were, who were believers and now see God 
And then you have a society in purgatory of those who died and are worthy of heaven but still haven't seen God. So the traditional way this is always put, coming from the Catechism and the Council of Trent, is that there are three basic representations of the church as a society. The first is us, the church militant in struggle. The second are the poor souls in purgatory. And the third would be the saints in heaven. Now, some of the saints we know, and we have separate days for them and all that business. But there are 144,000, which is a symbolic number, in uh, the book of Revelation. There are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, who would be the saints. On November 1st, then, we celebrate the feast of all these other people whom we don't know exactly are in heaven, but we presume they are. And so this is called called the Feast of All Saints. Also, I received a question recently in another publication I write for as to why the people in heaven don't communicate with the people on earth. Well, they do, but they don't communicate in an earthly manner. They communicate through spiritual union in Christ. So all the people who are centered in some way in Christ, who would be, again, the people seeing God in the face in heaven, the people in purgatory, and the people on earth, are all part of the society of the church, and they therefore experience a social union with each other, which is based on the union of grace. And therefore, they also can communicate with each other. Now, on earth, we need friends. In one of his questions, Thomas Aquinas asked if we need friends. And he said, on earth we do, but not because we'd be unable to experience integrity in ourselves like a drowning man. But he says, as Aristotle says, the happy man needs friends not to make use of them since he suffices himself, nor to delight in them since he possesses perfect delight with the operation of virtue, but for the purpose of a good operation, namely, that he may do good to them, that he may delight in seeing them do good, and again, that he may be helped by them in his good work. And this is the very the means in which we experience friendship with all those in heaven. Now, some people we know are our friends on earth. We hope they're in heaven, and we can experience their help. But other people, even people we don't know they're in heaven, want to help us too, because they're all happy in God. In the same question, St. Thomas says, if we speak of the perfect happiness with which we will be in our heavenly homeland, The fellowship of friends is not essential to this, since our entire perfection is in God. But the fellowship of friends conduces to the well-being of happiness, and so St. Augustine says, the spiritual creatures receive no other interior aid to happiness than the eternity, truth, and charity of the Creator. But if they can be said to be helped from outside, perhaps it is only by this that they see each other and rejoice in God at their fellowship. 
So because we have so many people in heaven who are enjoying God, they have a natural fellowship with each other, which is based on supernatural grace, and they want us to join them. They're on our side. They're kind of like the people on the sidelines encouraging you in a sporting event to win or in a boxing match to win or something like that. In a way, there are fans, you could say. So during this month of the church, we start off the month with these people because they demonstrate to us what the perfection of the church actually is. This is why we're in the church. The earthly church has lots and lots of black eyes, but not the heavenly church. In heavenly church, we have the final perfection of our fellowship as human beings with others because they're centered in the visible mission of Christ. So let us constantly appreciate this wonderful cloud of witnesses that have our welfare as a part of their life. And let us, in seeing you know, them do good, they see us do good, and they encourage us in that. Our fans, the saints. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. <clears throat> so pick up the phone and give us a call today at 833 288 3986. Now, if you don't live in the United States and Canada, or maybe you're traveling and visiting another place and you're outside of North America, we'd still like to talk to you. Give us a call at 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always reach out to us via email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. We're just getting started on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Wide open phone lines for you. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Our very own Prudence Robertson keeps you informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the entire culture of death that Pope John Paul II spoke of. All of it on EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly. And we can send EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly directly to your email inbox each week. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
The numbers again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Got an email from Linda, and uh, she would like to know if the church has a position on what would have happened if only Eve had eaten the fruit from the tree of knowledge. Well, theology reflection certainly does. Uh, The fullness of human life is expressed in both the man and the woman. This is why the unisex sort of thing today is completely inhuman, for one thing. Remember, Eve was created by Adam so he wouldn't be alone, or from Adam, by God so he wouldn't be alone, so they could experience a kind of interpersonal communion, gift and reception, much as the Holy Trinity does. So as a result, she receives her humanity, whereas Adam, in a sense, gives his, the humanity. He doesn't create her, obviously God does, but he recognizes her as human, and she recognizes him and returns it. In order for the original sin to be committed, the head of the human race would have to have done it. And because all things pass by physical connection to Adam. Now, of course, Eve's necessarily a part of that, but it's normally considered that the active power present in human seed is the physical, material means by which original sin is communicated. Although the present catechism does admit that it's a mystery how it's communicated from one person to another, what's not a mystery is that it's not we share in Adam's personal sin. It's the fact that everybody now created on earth enters the world without grace. So much so that Thomas Aquinas says, if God had created a man from the dust of the earth again, this person would not have the original sin. So as a result, if only Eve had sinned, this would be an imperfect communication of the fact of sin just through her. Adam's participation is absolutely necessary. And so our position would be, and again, this is a defined doctrine, so you couldn't deny it, but it's a, a very strong theological opinion based on logic of our doctrine that um, if only Eve had sinned, we wouldn't inherit the original sin. You know, and we were kind of talking uh, during the, the break, but, you know, that, that they both tried to push it off. Uh, but Adam not only tried to push it off on Eve, he tried to push it off on God. He said, yes. the woman that you gave me. That's right. She, he blames God, and Eve <laughs> blames the snake, the serpent. Yeah, uh-huh. That's right. That's awesome. right. Thanks so much for that email. We appreciate it, Linda. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Tom is in Libertyville, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Tom, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Hi, Father Brian. Hi. I'm, I'm having a little bit, a little bit of trouble framing this question. So, if you would bear with me a little bit. So, the concept of purgatory. Although I'm trying my best to be a good Catholic guy and and work as hard as I can towards that, I realize purgatory is almost not a not an option, it's a go-to place. So in that in that purification uh, during purgatory, uh, I was wondering like how much of our individuality is lost in that in that state. 
Um, so, I mean, obviously our attachments to the world needs to be eliminated and, you know, obviously our, our whole sinful nature takes on review. As opposed to, like, the Buddhist concept of, of moving towards nirvana, which the whole individual is just displaced and ends up in that nirvana state. All right. Well, first of all, uh, purgatory has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Purgatory has to do with the temporal punishments still due to us from sin. And it can either be here on earth, as if you suffer a terrible illness and you offer atonement for your sins, or if you don't experience your purgation on earth, you do it after death as a preparation for heaven. It has nothing to do with destroying your individuality at all. In fact, it has to do with reestablishing it more closely and more integrally because now all of your forces are totally freed, not just not so much from attachment to this earth, but from sin, whatever led you to sin. And that's not only you, of course, that's a part of it, but it's whatever, whoever you've offended. So let's say you, you murdered someone, but you got away with it, and you went to confession, and you asked forgiveness, and the priest absolves you, but you die in that state, all right, well, you, you're okay with God as far as heaven is concerned, but you have this thing inside your character that led you to murder someone, and you also have the person who's dead outside. Both of these have to be atoned for, and that's what we atone for in purgatory, either on this earth, as you would if you suffered capital punishment, for instance, for the murder, or after death, if you haven't suffered any punishment for this, you have a passive purgation in which these uh, weaknesses and these imperfections and even these injustices are healed. And unfortunately, unlike Earth, where you could give yourself up, for example, or personally accept by a positive act, whatever your punishment would be on this part of civil society, once you die, there's no positive acts you could make to decrease or increase in merit. So as a result, it's all passive. That's why we, uh, who here can, through our union of charity in Christ, offer um, positive acts to help a person atone for the temporal punishment for sin, which we call indulgences, that we offer our sacrifices for indulgences, for this person to have their purgation more quickly resolved. Does that help, Tom? Uh, to a degree, thanks. It, it, it does. I appreciate your time, Father. Thank you so much. Sure. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We head next to the Republic of... Well, check that. We're going to go to Livermore, California first. And Sharon is in California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Sharon, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you so much. Hello, Father. Hi. My, my, my question is, in the Bible in Luke, I don't know chapter and verse, but when the Lord is, is taken to the temple uh, for the presentation, 
And Simeon's prophecy, um, in part, says that Mary's soul will be pierced with, by a sword and, the men, and men's thoughts will be revealed. I don't understand that connection. Can you explain that for me? You mean the connection between the thoughts of men's heart being revealed and her her heart being pierced? Yeah, yeah, sir. Yeah. Oh well, that's really quite easy because you're finally going to see where people really stand over Christ's passion. So you have people that perhaps posed as believers, or even people like 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 Judas, for instance, whose thoughts of his heart were finally revealed around the passion. Uh, and and in the final judgment, of course, all of our thoughts will be revealed. There's nothing hidden that won't be made plain, and that before the entire assembled creation. So Mary's heart being pierced refers to Christ's passion, and of course it's through his passion that our inner life becomes an open book. Does that help, Sharon? Well, <laughs> um, I, it's you know, um, I I I see where Simeon doesn't know that Christ is going to be crucified. What do you mean he doesn't? He's only, know that? He's, well, well, he's not announcing that. He's announcing Mary's soul will be pierced. Is that the only portion he can see? Well. If you want a court-reported witness, eyewitness account of what will happen in the future, you won't find that in the prophets, any of them. Some of them, of course, get more of the stuff in than others. But the, the question is connecting Christ's presentation in the temple as the revelation to the Gentiles and the Jews with what's going on in Mary's soul. So in her soul, even though she's joyous now, well, it'll actually begin with the flight into Egypt, you know. I mean, uh, you have her heart being pierced, so-called seven sorrows. They're normally represented by swords in Our Lady's heart. And uh, it doesn't matter if you can see the, exactly the whole thing in picture, as a motion picture or something like that. What matters is he knows that by prophecy that this is going to be connected to suffering. Remember, when Jesus explains the suffering of the apostles for the first few times, they're, they're astonished. They don't believe the Messiah should suffer. But Simeon is very convinced that the Messiah will suffer. Yeah, is this just kind of the beginning of the many paradoxes between what the Messiah is compared to what the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to be? Well, I think it's the, you know, Simeon as the person who's pious. Simeon and Anna, remember, are people who frequent the temple and are described as just and pious. And they basically represent the Old Testament, waiting for centuries and centuries for the Messiah, that he knows that the Messiah will also be the suffering servant. It's for one thing that's been prophesied. And if Mary is his mother, she's obviously going to suffer too. God bless you, Sharon. We appreciate that phone call today. Jim in Texas, don't go anywhere. You're up next. We're also going to talk to Susan in Sioux City, Iowa, Teresa in Washington, D.C., and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 
1-800-227-3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, you can call us at 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We've got some anniversaries this week in the EWTN radio family. WOPG, PAX at Bonham Radio in New York, is celebrating 12 years of EWTN programming. And KVSG 107.1 in Twisp, Washington, is celebrating seven years with EWTN. Congratulations to both stations from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Uh, as advertised, we head to the Republic of Texas. Jim is in Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jim, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. So, Father, why are people, Christians, not flocking to the Catholic faith for the sacrament of reconciliation alone and being confident that their sins are forgiven? Well, I, I can't speak for the entire Protestant world, but uh, for one thing, remember Luther did not believe that physical mediators were necessary to experience grace. And part of his reaction against confession was that he himself had been very scrupulous. In fact, it's said that he used to confess two hours every day when he was an Augustinian to his superior. And you feel sorry for the poor old superior who had to sit through the two hour. Um, what would you say, scroop session on the part of Martin Luther. So he basically repudiated the idea. You know, the Anglicans do have a kind of confession, but they don't believe in sacramental absolution. Um, it's more like a counseling session that's religious, most of them. But still, a, a lot of it has to do with people don't want to reveal their conscience to other people. And they find it very intimidating to do that. Now, I have to say I don't, but that's because I was used to doing it from the time I was seven. And it was one of the reasons why we started having frequent confession when we were children in the Catholic Church, because people don't, they don't find it intimidating. You know, my mother was a convert from Methodism. And one of the things she never could get her, her mind around was confession. So she'd go in and she'd just have like a counseling session with the priest, and he'd allow her to do that. But um, she didn't get the, the message totally, you know. Um, and uh, it was hard to explain it to her because she wasn't used to it. But I think a lot of people find it intimidating to reveal their conscience to other people. Now, they'll pay a psychiatrist 100 bucks an hour. I'm sure the price has gone up uh, in the last few years to reveal all their innermost thoughts, but for some reason they don't connect that with religion or with absolution or anything like that. When the priests do it for free, but uh, I think that's partially the reason it's shame. 
Not to mention, I think it's probably a pretty enticing notion to think that you can just, in the privacy of your own yeah. home, uh, you know, confess to some nebulous being and not have to confront anybody me about what's Jesus. going on. Me and Jesus, yeah. Me and Jesus, yeah. Thank it's you, Jim. Indi- go, ahead, a, go ahead, Brian. Uh, well, it's a very individualistic religion, Protestantism, because they don't really believe the church is a a society or an entity as such. That's why they don't have bishops, most of them. And, of course, they have no centralizing figure like the papacy. And as you remember, in places like England, the king became head of the church. So what identities does the church really have then? It's like a department of the state to police morals. Some people would like to have it be that way in Catholicism, but that's not the church that Christ founded. Thanks so much, Jim. We appreciate the call today. Next up is Susan in Iowa City, Iowa, listening on Sioux Land Catholic Radio. Actually, she's in Sioux City, Iowa. Excuse me. Susan, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hi. Thank you. Uh, what I'm wondering, Father, is um, I have been away from the Catholic religion for over 40 years, and I've come back. Wonderful. And I'm trying to prepare my funeral so my children don't have to do that. I'm 81. And is it required with the Catholic faith that you have a mass, or do you, what about if you're cremated, does that make a difference whether you have a mass or whether you just go to the funeral home and have a service? I have no idea what to do. Well, I have no idea either in a way, because I'm not a parish priest. But it's, I, I know it's not required that you have a Mass, although it's highly recommended. And regarding cremation, uh, we do accept cremation, but it, it, it's not so much the, the funeral home as you want to have a more sacred setting in order to have your body uh, perhaps blessed or, or some kind of memorial service. Mass, of course, is the most ideal one because we're saying Mass for the repose of the person's soul. Um, also, if you're cremated, you should be either buried in consecrated ground or in the Asabar or whatever it is that, uh, you know, mausoleum they make for the ashes. Mm-hmm. Or you can be buried at sea, but you can't scatter your ashes, which is highly disrespectful of the body. Remember, the body is what you basically lived your life in as a moral being. It was what was anointed when you were confirmed. It was what was touched by the water when you were baptized. It was where you received Holy Communion. So we believe the body is holy. So it has to be treated in a sacred way. So if you wanted to be buried at sea, you'd have your ashes put in an urn and highly, you know, closed in such a way that it wouldn't um, disturb them. And then you can drop the urn into the ocean, but you can't scatter your ashes. It's highly disrespectful. God bless you, Susan. It warms our heart to see you come back to the church after those yes. many years, and we will keep you in our prayers. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. A couple of open lines for you at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Up next is Teresa in Washington, D.C., listening on Guadalupe Radio. Teresa, you're on with Father Brian. 
Well, Teresa, we're, we're having some trouble with your phone. Just hang in there. I'm going to ask your question for you. And she wants to know, how do we offer up for purgatory and to get them out early? It seems justice might not happen. Well. <laughs> so what can we do to get our loved ones oh, They're already purgatory? worthy of yeah. heaven. They're already worthy of heaven. Remember, you're not. Yeah, I think that's the overarching thing we always have to remember, huh? You can't go to hell when you're in purgatory. You're already worthy of heaven. It's you that have to be prepared yourself. Uh, one author I read said that the soul's purgation is finished when the soul is ready to go to heaven. So you can offer yourself and your your sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice, which the masses of the dead are about. Um, to help prepare you to experience a deeper infusion of love from Christ so that you'll be prepared sooner. And also, it's the scriptures are clear, it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. If they're in heaven, it doesn't help them. If they're in hell, it doesn't help them either. So why on earth would it be a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead? And you remember that the context is a battle that occurred in Judas Maccabeus against, I believe, the Syrians, where um, they found the men that had been killed had pagan amulets under their clothing, even though they fought for Israel. So Judas had the names taken down, and he offered a sacrifice for them uh, because they had these pagan amulets. In a similar way, when we've transgressed the law of God, we have to try to make up for it. Now, if we're on earth again, as I say, we can do that very easily. Uh, if I wreck somebody's car, I could buy them a brand new car, for example. But I can't do that once I die. So I suffer, and other people help me by their actions, where they actively offer themselves or their actions, like the Mass, for instance, for the resolution of this condition but the, the, the fact is, atonement is made for temporal punishment due to sin when the person who was the sinner is satisfied that they don't mind Christ seeing them now with their soul the way it is. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Steve in Cleveland, Ohio listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Steve, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hey, good Steve. afternoon, Father. Hi. I'm a cradle Catholic, and I got wondering, did the Reformation surprise God? And you would think there'd be some foretelling of this, just as Christ was foretold in the Old Testament. And basically I have my no question idea. Kind of, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, God's I mean, never, God's if, never if, with that magnitude of a change... Wouldn't that have been told in the foretold somewhere in the Bible, or God just suddenly, hey, this is wrong, we're going to make a change? Well, first of all, the Bible talks all about all kinds of difficulties occurring with the church throughout the, you know, you'll see people come in my name, don't follow them, etc. Secondly, everybody knew the Reformation uh, was on, it was prepared for for 150 years. It basically began with the Black Death and the Pavignon Papacy, you know, where they had two popes. 
And, and the problem wasn't so much the two popes, which was a problem in itself, but the fact that there were two papal courts that had to be supported. So that's when they began to sell offices and sell bishoprics and, and sell, um, uh, you know, all kind of indulgences. And the indulgence for the building of St. Peter's was sometimes preached by preachers who weren't too swift when it came to theology. So they'd represent it in a certain way, where at least it was reported to Luther that they were saying you could be forgiven even future sins and you wouldn't have to, you know, repent at all if you bought these indulgences. Now, that whether the preacher actually said that or not, all of us who give sermons or teach classes know that you can talk to people that have been there and they all have a different take on what you actually said. And you didn't probably say any of it sometimes. So, but, you know, everybody knew the church needed reform. They tried and tried and tried. The Fifth Lateran Council, just on the eve of the Reformation, was supposed to be a council of reform. But they couldn't get the, the, the bishops to go along with it was the big problem. Even in the Council of Trent, one of the biggest problems was absentee bishops because they were all off in the courts or off doing other things. And many of them lived like secular lords. So they tried to force them to return to their sees. Many of them wouldn't do it. But people that were filled with great integrity and also great power like Charles Borromeo knew it was important. So they started to do it. They also founded seminaries for the training of the, the clergy because there were none. So some of the clergy had really weird ideas about various things. And so slowly but surely, because these people produced priests that were exemplary, and then of course you had the Jesuits and the Capuchins, people who existed to um, refound religious life uh, and refound spiritual training for the laity. Uh, they were so influential that eventually everybody began to change and come along, but not easily. You know, the Council of Trent Degrees weren't published in Paris in, in France until Cardinal Richelieu, which would be 40 years after it ended. So uh, there were many warning signs about this, but God wasn't surprised by it. I mean, it's, God's not surprised by anything. Um, you know, he offered people the ability to change it they kept having these councils and reform movements and they never seemed to work until the break became complete. And it also became connected with politics too because uh, and money. In the English Reformation, one of the biggest difficulties was the dissolution of the monasteries where all these people became fabulously wealthy off the land of the church and so it became uh, you know, very expedient for them to seek the dissolution of the monasteries, and they could always find some corruption someplace, and that led them to close these absolutely beautiful abbeys. If you've ever seen some of the large abbeys, were absolutely gorgeous places, like fountains, for instance, that are, are just ruins now. It's very sad, the whole thing. But it was a cultural cleansing. And Solomon's words have been true throughout of human history, and even to this day, there's nothing new under the sun, huh? 
Right. Thanks, Steve. We really appreciate the phone call today. The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know, is a powerful five-part mini-series hosted by Mary Hassan, where she and her guests discuss the issues now confronting the family and how the church can respond. We are going to run that series next week right here on EWTN's Open Line during the first half hour. You'll hear the episode of the day, and then next Thursday you'll hear Father Brian Milady's comments, and we will take your phone calls and your emails about the topic, what the trans, uh, the transgender movement, rather, what Catholics need to know. It's an EWTN week-long event starting Monday afternoon, uh, November 7th at 3 Eastern time. Encores at 10 p.m. Eastern time all week on EWTN Radio. Still squeeze in a couple phone calls if you pick up the phone and give us a ring at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Nancy wants to know what the difference is between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and wants to know how can we gain the plenary indulgence for All Saints' Day, uh, which we've, we've passed by a couple of days, but there, are, there is a plenary indulgence, I think, involved for the entire month of November, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'm glad you know about that. I don't. <laughs> or at least there was last year, and I think because of COVID— but and I don't know if that's still in play or not. But if you pray for the dead in a cemetery, Norm, well, normally you you visit, say mass, have, go to a mass, and say, uh, you know, Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory be for the intentions of the Pope, uh, and you do do some, something like that. Depending, I'm not aware of this indulgence, but because uh, they make them all the time. As to the other issue, now what was the other issue? The difference between the two most popular creeds. Oh, yeah. Well, the Apostles' Creed comes to us from history. We don't know where or how. But it was an attempt to express, the, one of the first attempts, to express our union of faith. And there's a pious tradition. This never happened historically. But it's an attempt to show how it expresses the faith of the Apostles. That when... The Holy Spirit came upon them in Pentecost. Each one stood up and said one of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. But its origin is shrouded in mystery. Nobody really really knows where it came from. The Nicene Creed, on the other hand, is a product of the Council of Nicaea. And it was agreed to in a general council after much debate, especially over uh, consubstantial and the Greek equivalent, homoousius, homoousius. And then also it was reaffirmed in the Council of Chalcedon. And then there's a very beautiful creed that the priests used to say every week at the Office of Prime, which uh, expresses the faith of Nicaea in a, a wonderful, wonderful, very explicit way. And it's called the Athanasian Creed. Now, it's attributed to Athanasius, who is the great opponent of the heretic Arius, but it comes after him by about 200 years. So it's not that he wrote it, but that it expresses his deep faith. And the Protestants have an author, J.N.D. Kelly, who wrote a book about creeds and the history of creeds. It's quite large. So uh, there's a whole um, theology and history behind the expression of the creed. And they say probably the original creedal statement is the one of baptism. 
uh, as you know, we do believe in God, the Father Almighty. Do you believe in the, And we say, yes, yes, and yeah, I do believe. So, and that's a very thumbnail sketch of the faith. So that's basically the origin of the creeds. But the one that's most connected and most authoritative, and that's why it's the one we say on Sunday Mass, although you can, for the sake of time, substitute the Apostles' Creed, is the Nicene Creed. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Tim called in from Idaho and was not able to hold on, but his question is, how do I, a sinner, offer up the body, blood, soul, and divinity to the Father? Are we offering up someone else's merits? Uh, No, you're offering yourself insofar as you're able to. Um, so you're doing, and of course, in that particular context, you would receive back the gift of a spiritual communion uh, if you made one. But you, you've been present at the sacrifice of the mass. Now, for the full participation in it, you'd obviously have to be in a state of grace. So that was why you should confess your mortal sins before you uh, are present at the mass. And then the fullness of the, well, they call it the oblation, the interior and exterior oblation, is something you can participate in. If you're in the state of sin, you participate in the exterior oblation, but not in the interior oblation of your heart. That's And then when Vatican II said they wanted us to actively participate at Mass, they were talking about singing more songs, <laughs> especially with people who are lousy singers. They were talking about the interior oblation. Um, we got an email here from Mark, and he says, I know we are initially justified by grace, but I also know we can lose our justification, which is why we need confession. Does that mean we are re-justified? Well, I don't think I like the word justification. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. <laughs> in that context, uh, justification has to do with your interior union of all the parts of your soul. Another be- better word is righteousness for you. And our justification begins in faith, although it does end in charity. So the fact that you still believe even though you don't live your belief or you're in the state of mortal sin, means that you don't need any new justification, but you need to make your justification more perfect. And you can, you do that by going to confession. You're not re-justified. Uh, it's just that the original justification you received at baptism is something you can live most fully again. And we've got a question here from Brandon that I think a lot of us have contemplated over the years, and not just about this particular scripture reference, but just in general. He says, Christ says in Matthew's gospel that if we call someone a fool, we are doomed. His question is, if we think about it but don't say it, is it still the same sin? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be the same sin, but I think you need to remember that there's a thing called Semitic exaggeration that Christ often employs because it was common in his time. So I, I would be very, I'd have to look up a scripture commentary to see what 
the the source of that is in the context of Christ's time, but I I I don't think it means quite literally what it seems to mean in English. And um, <laughs> and <laughs> this, I just don't know which to pick of the ones that I have in front of me here. Um, can people who are not Catholic, Carol wants to know, go to heaven? Oh gosh, yes. I, actually, the fellow um, on the program before mine was talking about this too, Doctor so Andrews. Was, yeah, Doctor Andrews. I was listening to him. Uh, yes, provided that um, they have invincible ignorance about the things they don't believe about Catholicism, and that they make use of the things in their religion that are also things that Catholicism believes because they, we all have certain connections with some of the things we believe and that as um, Journet once said before Vatican II who was really the big origin of the uh, um, many of the ideas concerning the relationship of other religions to, to Catholicism and Lumen Gentium provided that you don't emphasize those elements which are not in union with the church to the expense of those that are. are. Now, ideally, I think that the church's attitude toward this is, is that all things being equal, in other words, the French didn't take over your country in an imperialistic war and burn your house down and kill your parents, but all things being equal, Things that are in union with the Catholic Church should lead you to faith in the Catholic Church eventually, as they did many famous converts like Newman, for example. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.